Parashat Bo. This is a good one. This is a good one. So, Efi Tam, 1976. This is three years after the Yom Kippur War. Okay? And this is the second story that he credits with, um, with sort of bringing him back to a deeper connection with Judaism, a.k.a. made him from whatever that means. So, you know the story. There's an Air France jet, end of June, beginning of July, 1976. America is preparing for the bicentennial. I remember the bicentennial very well. 200th anniversary on July 4th, 1976. Israel is in a very different state of mind. An Air France jet took off from Tel Aviv. It was headed back to France. Um, it stopped in Athens, in Greece. Security in Athens was horrendous back then. Um, they basically orchestrated a blackout, and the lines were getting impatient, so they started letting people through even though the x-ray machines weren't working. Um, and four terrorists snuck on board this plane with uh, an intent to do serious harm. They hijacked the plane. Um, they diverted it uh, first to Libya and then to Uganda. And uh, they basically uh, landed in the uh, old airport of Uganda, the old terminal of Uganda, and they held hostages. One of the first things they did was to separate the passengers. They collected all their passports, and uh, after about six hours, right, two of the terrorists who were from Badr Meinhof, which is like associated with the Red Brigades, um, and two Palestinian terrorists um, associated with, um, actually with Fat with PLO, and um, they started reading out names. And they said, the following names that I read out should go through this hole that they broke into, you know, in the wall into another part of the terminal, Everybody else will stay here. It became very clear after just a couple of minutes what they were doing. They were killing out all the names that sounded like Goldberg, Eisenstein, you know, Yehuda, Dakar, any name that sounded Israeli or Jewish in Israeli passport. They were put through the wall and they were separated. The Air France crew refused to be separated. They were told that all the non-Jewish passengers, non-Israeli passengers, they had no quarrel with them, they were going to be released. Um, and all of the Israelis and Jews, right, famous anecdote from that moment, one of, the, um, one of the passengers, a fellow called Goldberg, right, is told to come up, and he comes up and he holds out his arm. And on his arm is a number. And he looks at them and he says, I know exactly what you're doing. The Air France crew refuses to be separated, and so as the dust settles on the first day of this terrorist hijacking, um, 80-something, some odd Israelis and Jews, um, surrounded by terrorists, other terrorists, join Ugandan uh, military surround the airport. They basically secured the airport for the terrorists. Idi Amin Dada was a dictator, had a deal with Arafat and whoever else was involved, George Chabash. And, uh, and the Jews went uh, to sleep for a rather fitful night of sleep. In Tel Aviv, in the Kiryat military headquarters, a group of uh, soldiers from the elite Sayyid Matkal, one of them being Efi Etam, are gathered in a room. They've been given a mission by the Prime Minister, Yitzhak Rabin, to come up with a plan. And the way he describes the story is unbelievable. You know, you have this kind of image of these sophisticated planning, intelligence coming in, you know, reading dossiers on each of the Ugandan soldiers. 
right? They're sitting on the table saying, okay, so what's the best way to do it? They didn't know exactly where Uganda was. You know, like it just so happened that they didn't know where Uganda was. They weren't exactly sure. They knew it was in Africa. They weren't exactly sure. And there was no map. They couldn't find a map there. So Effie Tom and somebody else went down to Tel Aviv. They went down the street, and there was a toy store there. And they went in, and they found one of these toy maps for kids of the world, and they brought it back up. That was the beginning of the planning for the mission of Entebbe. True story. And as this un, un, uh, you know, sort of unfolds and begins to develop, they start coming up with a plan. And more you know, higher-ranking officials come in, and officers and people are sort of getting together, and uh, they're working on this plan. And there's a guy who works in the Kirya, but he's not really, he's a contractor. He's like a Kablan, he's like doing electrical work or something, whatever. And um, he was helping somebody come into the room. Somebody told me he was actually bringing them pizza. I've heard different versions of this, but this is what I heard from Efi Yitam. And um, comes into the room, into the Hamal. You know, he has security clearance because he does stuff in the building. And he walks in, right? And he sees on the map, there's a big map of a certain area of Uganda and Lake Victoria, right? And, um, and he hears a part of the conversation. And he interrupts him. He says, wait a second. He says, are you guys talking about what I think you're talking about? And everybody looks at him and suddenly realizes, like, another guy walked into the room. And it's like today where you have, like, you know, they have to check your eye print. This is Israel, you know, right? So they look at the and to say, he goes, are you thinking about dropping commandos into Lake Victoria? So one of the guys is like, well, maybe. He said, well, um, I spent two years in Africa working on whatever, mission, whatever, and um, not as, as part of a, a UN project that Israel spearheaded um, to, to bring agriculture and whatever. He said, if you drop commandos into Lake Victoria, not a single one of them will make it to shore because that lake is completely full of alligators. True story, right? They all look at him and they have to scrap their plan and redo it from the start. And Efiatam will tell you that if, if Operation Entebbe survived, it was because this guy happened to walk into the room at that time. They were absolutely, the best way to plan that mission was to fly in units, drop them into Lake Victoria, and then whatever they were gonna do, because it was basically a three mile hike to the airport. When they realized they couldn't do it, they realized the only way to do it was actually to land at the airport, and that's how the mission from Entebbe was born. Just to finish this story, so you'll know why this had such an impact on him. He was one of the mission commanders. Uh, there were three planes that flew to Entebbe. Um, he was actually the first one uh, off the first plane on the ground, sort of with the first uh, beacon. They, the men just, part of the planning was they jumped off the plane and put beacon lights on the runway because they knew that once the Ugandans realized what was going on, they were shut off the runway lights, they wouldn't be able to take off, right? So they put these beacons, and when they turned off the runway lights, the runway lights were still on. And um, they were in the plane that he was commanding on the way to Uganda. Um, it was a, a torturous journey. It was over 2,000 miles. Remind you, this is 1976. These are uh, C-135, uh, sorry, Hercules. Um, big, heavy jumbo planes. You've probably seen movies, and if you haven't, you should. And they're propeller-driven. And most interesting about them was that the navigation systems of these planes worked on gyroscopes. They didn't have satellite technology back then. So they had gyroscopes, and the way a gyroscope works is is it, it sort of floats, if you know what a gyroscope is. It, it's based on sort of the magnetic uh, poles and, and whatever else it's based on. 
Um, and, and therefore, no matter which way you fly, it stays level. Right? And it can measure distance. Right? What's the problem with gyroscope navigation? The problem is when you get into a storm. When you get into a storm, particularly a lightning storm, it, it, it makes the gyroscopes completely useless because the magnetic field is, goes haywire. So they, they had a terrible storm that night. And they're flying through the storm, and they have no idea where they're going. And they're flying blind. And they're basically flying based on their last position. But you don't really know in a storm if you're flying straight or not flying straight. And they're starting to run out of fuel, right? And they only have a certain amount of fuel left, right, before they go no-go. Right? You can't risk running out of fuel on the way back because, you know, then you'll have all that hostages on the planes and your plane will crash. This is the same issue for all three planes. They're all stuck in the storm. They're terrified they're going to bang into each other. They're flying low on the ground to avoid radar, so they're terrified they're going to hit the ground, right? And, and they don't know what they're going to do. And the, the, the tension in the plane is incredible because they start realizing that they have another half an hour, another 20 minutes. If they don't get out of the storm soon, the pilot says, we're going to have to turn around or we're going to have to abort the mission. Right, we'll have to fly in a different direction, and eventually when we come out of the storm, we'll head to Kenya, which is where we're supposed to refuel, and then head back. Abort mission. And uh, F.E.A. Tom comes up to the cockpit, and he's trying to figure out, you know, and he's saying, what can we do? Is there anything we do? There's nothing we can do. We've got to get out of the storm. So he offers up what he calls the atheist prayer. You know how an atheist prayer starts? How's an atheist prayer start? Starts with the word, look, I don't know if you're there. I don't know if you're there. But if you are there, Know that we're doing this for your people. And if we don't do this, no one else will. And they will all die. And if there was ever a moment when you have to help us, then this is that moment. And he says the only verse at the time that he knew by heart, which was, when to guess? The Shema. True story. He says the Shema. He finishes saying the Shema. There's a crack of lightning. About 30 seconds later, the clouds clear and they come out of the storm. The pilot looks at him. He looks at the pilot. The pilot shrugs. None of them have kippot on their heads. And he goes back to the cockpit. The mission's a go. And he later realizes, he's got to start thinking about this. Okay? Now, why did I tell you this whole story? Because all those passengers were saved. That entire mission, the Kiddush Hashem involved, the impact it had on the world, because one guy walks into a room, sees something, and does the most important thing that you can do when you look at the world. And what is that? It's the same thing you have to do when you open up a Sefer. It's the same thing you have to do when you learn a Sugya. It's the same thing you have to do when you learn a piece of Torah. What do you have to do? You have to ask a question. You have to see what bothers you. Right? It's the most critical part of learning. The question. So I want to share with you an idea. Okay? And uh, this idea is not just uh, for Parshat Bo, although certainly it is. It's also a phenomenal idea for Pesach. Okay? There are many, many, many famous pieces in this week's Parsha. Really quite incredible how packed this Parsha is, right? But one of the pieces, we kind of, um, we don't spend a lot of time on them. Because by the time we get to study them, the next time we get to study them, you know, we're tired, we're hungry, you know. Willing to have a discussion, but don't want to push it too far. So I'm going to give you something to think about. What famous topic and what famous night am I talking about? Which famous night? Lila Seder. And what is one of the central pieces of the Seder night that appears in this expression? No? Or at least three out of four. No? Pardon? Well, Makkah Bachar is a pretty small piece of uh, the Seder. The Arba Bani. 
It's actually only three of them in this week's prayer. All right? So let's start with one of them. Okay? Ve'aya ki yish'alcha bincha machar lemor. When your son will ask you tomorrow saying, Mazot, what is this? Okay? So, the Torah tells me that your children will ask a question. And when your children ask a question, then you have to be prepared with the answer. Okay? What do you say to this guy who says, Mazot? With a strong hand, the took us out of Egypt. Now that's very interesting. First of all, which son is this of the four sons? This is the Tom. Listen to the Tom. Okay? I printed out a piece of that gada so I could be sure we're getting this right. This is the Tom. Tom Mahu Omer. What does the Tom say? By the way, who's the Tom? What's the Tom? So everybody says that. He's the simple son. Let me ask you a question. Is simple good? I go over to one of the boys in here. I go over to David Edwards. Say, David Edwards, you are the simple son. Does he say, look at me, I'm the simple son? We don't really kind of like, we don't, we don't at the bris say, Hashem should bless you to be a simple son. It's not really, that's not what Tom is. But if you think about these four sons, he's up there, okay? He's not the Russia, he's not the Chacham. So where do we find the word Tom? Yaakov is the Ish Tom. Is he simple? Is Yaakov simple? What, do, what does it mean that Yaakov is the Ish Tom Yosheva Alim? What is he? What do you think he is? What is he? He's, he's, he sits in the tent. He doesn't go out in the world. He doesn't deal with the Asavs of the world. He's, want to guess? He's pure. He's whole. He's complete. What do we sing every time we do a sim? Torah Hashem, Timima. It's Tamim. Same word. The Tam is the one who's pure. He's not messed up by the Russia. He's not complicated like the Chacham. He's just pure. What does he say? Mazel, what is this? That's all he wants to know. It's a legitimate question. What is exactly we're doing here? Right? By the way, how old is the Tom? doesn't say. It's irrelevant. Right? We kind of think of the Tom because of the art drawings in the Haggadot. He's like, the 17-year-old is like, you know, couldn't get into school. He's a 7-year-old. He's a 12-year-old. He's Tom. He just honestly wants to know, what is that? It's really cool. Now, a person can ask the same question in two different ways. He could say, what is this? Or he could say, what is this? Right? One is pure, one's wicked. Okay? So this is the Tom. Mazo ve'amartelam. You should say to him. Why is the answer to the Tom that Hashem took us out with a strong hand from the house of slavery? Maybe we'll get back to that, maybe we won't, but that's a good question. Okay, all right, so that's one son, right? Then we got another son, okay? This is a few psukim earlier, right? On that day, which day? Why not today? Right, so this is before Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So what day is it? On that day, when Yitzhak Mitzrayim comes, when the day of getting out of Egypt comes, or on that day, one day in the future. When that day comes, Right? Hashem did all this for me. Took me personally out of Egypt. Right? Right? This is Tefillin, but okay. Right? Which son is this? The Russia. Wow. Is that the answer we give to the Russia? Pardon? 
That is the Shenoi of the Sishanabet. That is the Shenoi of Deli Shal. Why do I know that's the Shenoi of Deli Shal? For two reasons. First of all, because he doesn't ask. It just says, Vigarata Levin Chabayamahulimor. You get a kid who doesn't even know how to ask. But he's at the Seder. He just doesn't know how to ask. He doesn't even know what the questions are. You know? That person doesn't even know what the questions are. You, you, you got to tell him. This is what you got to tell him. Hashem did this for me when he took me. That's a strange answer. Let's be honest here. You're in, I don't know, pick the university. Where are you going to university? Uh, Pardon? Okay. If Mashiach comes, you'll be at Bar Ilan. But let's say University of Chicago. Fine. Live in your fantasy. Okay. So you're in the University of Chicago. You will have no problem finding a Chacham in University of Chicago. Chicago. Could be you'll find the Russia. We'll get to him in a minute, right? But it's easy to find the Shinoi Daily Show. Now, University of Chicago is known for having people who love to ask questions. But whether they ask Jewish questions is different. That's a different question, right? So now if you sit down to the Seder, and somebody's drinking a cup of wine, and you got there late, what would be your question? Which cup are you on? If you're on the first cup, awesome, we're starting the Seder. If you're on the fourth cup, I blew it, and it's a very quick Seder. But he just says, oh, cool, you're having a cup of wine. And you realize right away, he doesn't even know how to ask the questions. So you, gotta, you, you have an opportunity. He's at the Seder. You've got to say something to him. So what would you say to him? Right? What would you say to him? What does the Haggadah say? You say to him, at taklo. You've got to open him up. What does that mean? By the way, why does it say at instead of ata? Anybody know? The different Mepharshim will say different things. At is obviously the feminine. Right? So they're different Farshim. Some Farshim say because the, 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 we're talking about the little child, little child who doesn't know how to ask, right? I once read an article that suggested that the primary influence on a child, right, until age seven is the mother. And the primary influence on the child until age 14 is the father. And at age 14, both of you have to realize you have to take a step back. Now, I don't know if this is empirical or scientific, but I remember it stuck in my head, and I found it at least very unscientifically to be true with our children. Right? I, I love my kids, and I'm close to them, whatever, but the influence that my wife had on them compared to the influence I had on them when they were little, it, there's just no comparison. Right? So it's interesting. But at also can refer to a, 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 an educational methodology. Like, this is a soft touch. You don't look at the kid who doesn't know how to ask and say, Well, you don't know what cup it is? What? You never saw from a Seder before? What? Right? Has, I don't know why I go Brooklyn when I have that, but okay, whatever, right? <laughs> it, it has to be soft. If, if a guy doesn't even know what the questions are, you got to be soft. Okay, at ptachlo. Now, this is interesting. What does the Haggadah say? Right? There will be a child you'll have to speak to who doesn't even know how to ask. He doesn't open the conversation. You, but what does that mean? Right? It should just say, Why does it add that? Understand, there's a skill to starting that dialogue. Right? A person, why doesn't a person ask a question? Why doesn't a person ask a question? Hmm? What kind of person doesn't ask a question? Two types of people don't ask questions. One is, pardon? What? Oh, he's shy. Oh, I didn't think of that. Okay. Person is shy. Well, let's assume we overcome the shyness, right? That could be. Yeah. 
I don't think that's the Shinoi Dei Hashem. I think that we're going to talk about that with the Russia. Right? There's a very simple reason a person doesn't, want, doesn't know, doesn't, doesn't ask questions. Yeah? Is it afraid to ask your own questions? You know what I love about this? I love that you guys are so right there. I love that. Because this, this is such a bracha that this doesn't even occur to you. Because you're having such an awesome experience, I hope. No, he doesn't ask questions because he could care less. He just doesn't care. He's, he's not against, he's not anti, he's not cynical. He's on his way to the bowl game. You know, he's, he's there because mom wants him to go there, but he's got his phone under the table. Right? So he has no questions. Now, let's say you go to a shear. Let's say you come to, uh, I don't know, somebody's giving you shear. And somebody says, look, you know, I'm not, Rav says I'm not going to be here. So you know what? Go, there's a shear going on, go in there. Somebody's giving a lundish shear on Machlokas um, and uh, Yevamos about the Tsaros. Right? And you hear the word Tsara and Tsaratan, Tsarat, Tsaratan. You hear this 11 times. You don't know what a Tsara is. You don't know what a Yevama is, whatever. After 10 minutes, you're not going to ask a question in that shear because you don't really care about Yevamos. Right? So, at ptachlo means you have to open him up to the fact that there's a value to the question. Right? But why is this what you say to him? What's the difference between uh, sorry, why do you say to him It's an interesting person. Alright, then you get the third son. Okay? The third son is the Russia. Okay? By the way, if a person doesn't ask a question, why do you feel the need to answer him? Why are you sharing with him anything? He doesn't have a question himself. He doesn't have a question. Yeah? If he doesn't know what it's going to be part of something, then by including him, you'll be given a chance to realize what he's missing out on. Okay, maybe. Maybe. Yeah? To indicate to him that he should be questioning it? Pardon? Yeah, but why should it, why do you care that he should be questioning it? What does it mean that you open up to him? Like, why do we have to do this? You know, like there's four kids. One of them doesn't have any questions, but he's sitting there, he's quiet. Great. Wait, wait till your parents. Wait till your parents, and you got a three-year-old. Right? Abba, how come we're making Kiddush? Because it's Shabbat. How come it's Shabbat? Because it's the seventh day. How come there's seven days? Because Hashem created the world. How come Hashem created the Shh! Right? If you get a kid who's in there, so maybe you just want to be quiet. Interesting. Okay. Then comes my favorite. This is my favorite. All right? Who is this guy? This is in Parakid Bet. One second. Uh, here we go. Chafavav. Parakid Bet plus a Chafavav. Right? Oh no, not this one, sorry. It's great that on the tape they get all the page turn. Okay. Vehaya. Ki yomru elechem benechem ma vodazot lachem. When your children say to you, what is this to you? Ma vodazot lachem. Right? So, who's that? That's the Russia. Now, why is that the Russia? Pardon? So that's what everybody says. Everybody says, Lachem, right? Velolo. But let's open up Dvarim. Because Dvarim is actually where the Chacham is. Okay? Uh, not here. I can find it. 
Listen to what the Chacham says. Ki yishalcha bincha machal Right? When your son will ask you tomorrow, saying, Ma'edot v'achokim v'amishpatim asher tziva Hashem alokeinu atchem. Right? What are the edot v'achokim asher tziva Hashem alokeinu atchem? So it's a very similar question. Ma'edot v'achokim, what are all these laws? That's what the Chacham says. What does the Russia say? Right? Ma'avodazot lachem. What is this deal? They're both asking the question. Why are we assuming one's a Russia? Yeah? Okay, maybe it's somehow a burden. I'm going to suggest something simpler <coughs> that we tend to miss. Anybody else? Let me read this one more time. See if you pick up on this. This is the Chacham. Ki yishalcha bincha machar lemo ma'edot v'achukim v'amishpatim sh'tziva Hashem l'kenu atchem. When your son asks you tomorrow, saying, what are these laws, all these statutes that Hashem commanded you? Etchem, right? Okay? What does the Russia do? Right? When your children say to you, what is this to you? It seems very similar. There's one really fundamental difference. Yeah, Joey. And therefore, what's the difference? Good. If you're asking a question, you have one answer. Because one is saying and one is asking. The Russia isn't asking a question. Now, I want you to know. This is a fascinating idea. We haven't defined what a Russia is, but what makes you a Russia is that you're not asking a question. That's unbelievable. Right? You're saying, you're telling. Now, you could extrapolate on this, right? If your children are telling you, instead of asking you, there's something wrong with that. That's a pretty extreme statement, right? That saying it instead of asking it is the difference between a chacham and a rasha. Now, by the way, if we go Rambam, what is the Chacham? He's not the wisest. He's balanced. Isn't that interesting? Okay? There's a major question when it comes to the Russia that most people miss. Okay? But the Mephoshim will notice this. This is the Russia in the Haggadah. Okay? Rasha Ma'umer. What does the Russia say? The wicked son, whatever you want to call it. Exactly what it says in the puzzle. Lachem Vololo. He says Lachem. And not to him. He's excluding himself. And because he removes himself from the cloud from everybody else, he has denied um, a principle. That there's, a, there's an essential idea in Judaism that he's missing. Okay, maybe. What does that mean? That's what most people will say. He hit his teeth. We'll get back to that. Do you agree with me? That's like... Like, if you get the, the University of Virginia student or whichever university you think is the guy who Shino did the show, and he's sitting at the table, he's like, yo, dude, like, what does that mean? Oh, that means when a guy says, like, what is this to you? You gotta pop him one. It's not really conducive to a beautiful discussion at the University of Chicago, but okay, right? We'll see if that's what it means. Hashem did this for me when I got out of Egypt. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what we say to the Shinoi Daily Show. Let me read this to you again, right? I debated, you know, photocopying this, giving it all out, having everybody have it, I got it, and then I said, nah, I'll just read it twice. Okay. So the Rosh you say, Vafata Kechinav, pop him in the teeth, if that's what it means, Vemolo, and say to him, there's that word again, Ba'avul Zeh Asa Hashem Libet Seti For this, 
did Hashem take me out of Egypt? Whatever this is. Leave a low, 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 Hashem, low, and Nikal. He wouldn't have been redeemed. What do I say, right? So I say to him, For this Hashem took me out of Egypt. What do I say to the Shainer de Elishal? Same answer. Isn't that interesting? You're answering the rush of the same thing as she knows the other show. But you know what makes it more interesting? Listen to what the Torah says. Now, if you have two sources, the Haggadah and the Torah, and they disagree with someone, with, with each other, who would you go with? The Torah, right? I mean, this is the source, right? So, this is associated with the Russia. It's exactly the question of the Russia, right? Same question. But what does the Torah tell us? Right? Ve'amartem, anybody know? Zevach Pesach hu l'Hashem. Asher Pasach al Batei Bnei Yisrael b'Mitzrayim. You say to him, this is the Korban Pesach. And the reason we eat the Korban Pesach is because Hashem Pasach al Batei Bnei Yisrael. Hashem passed over the houses of Israel. Benakpo, when he plagued Egypt and our homes, ve'et Batei Nuitzil. And the people bowed and whatever. Kida is an interesting discussion for another time, right? It's a form of prostration, but okay. So this is a totally different answer. Now, we do say this later on in the Haggadah, but it's not the answer to the Russia. And yet, this is exactly what the Torah says is the answer to the Russia. Right? So the Torah says, I answer the Russia, Zevach Pesach. And the Haggadah says, I answer the Russia the same thing as Shainai Deshel. So, what's going on here? Right? Why do we have a different answer in the Haggadah than we have in the Torah? It doesn't seem to make sense. So, I want to share with you an idea. But in order to share with you an idea, I first have to do one more thing. Let's talk about the most problematic line in the entire Haggadah, which is, Afata Hakei Etchinaf. Right? I was always bothered by that. I was bothered by it, first of all, because it just seems like a horrible thing to do. And I was bothered by it because I don't think it's true. I don't think when you have a person who's a Russia who says, right, we'll get to who he is in a second, that the answer is the popping one. I've never found that to be useful in Israelite or a writer or anywhere else. So what exactly is that going to try to tell me? Right? What is the Russia? Who is the Russia? This is interesting. What makes a person a Russia, according to the Haggadah? Right? The Torah doesn't call him a Russia. The Haggadah does. Right? So, what makes him a Russia? Right? He says, But that's not so different from what the Chacham says. Right? So the Haggadah says, Right? He excludes himself from the Jewish people. What makes a person a Russia? What makes a person wicked? What makes a person... Now, now what's the opposite of, of a Rasha? Right, by the way, why is he called a Rasha? Because he's Ra. In fact, some of you may remember that in one of the classes I gave, we were talking about um, Otiot. We were talking about letters as having significance. And we suggested that the letter Shin is three prongs going in every which direction represents chaos, as opposed to Mem, the almost perfect circle which represents harmony, right? Wholeness. That's why the word shame kind of takes chaos and brings it to harmony. That's why we call God Hashem, the source of harmony, right? Without God, it's all chaos. So here you have a word rasha. It's really the word ra with shin in the middle. It's chaos. 
right? There's, there's a wicked chaos going on here. What makes a person that wicked source of chaos? What's the opposite of Ra is Tov. Now we know what Tov is. And don't say good, because I'll just ask you what good is. We've said this many times, right? There's only two places in the entire Torah, right? That it says that something is not good. It's not good for man to be alone. Right? That's what Yitro says to Moshe when he's judging alone. So therefore, the opposite of Lotov, Lotov being alone, is that it's good that we should sit together. So Tov is all about getting it together. Derech HaTovim of the Ramam is the way that we get it together. So what's Ra? Ra is when we separate ourselves. Right? Ra is, is, is when we exclude ourselves. That's what the Rasha is, somebody who excludes himself. So what do you do with the person who excludes himself? This is not the person who's excluded by virtue of the fact that he doesn't know. This is not the person who's uncomfortable or shy, somebody said, because he doesn't understand. This is the person who doesn't even want to be a part of it. But isn't it interesting that the person who doesn't want to be a part of it is at the Seder table? You know, Lubavitcher Rebbe is famous for saying, there are actually five sons. Because the fifth son is the one who never makes it to the Seder. And he's the one we have to go out and find. Which is interesting, because that represented everything he accomplished in this world. Right? So, so what do you say to the Russia? So listen to this. Hakechinav, right? Hakechinav does not mean to hit. I first heard this idea from Ravriskin many, many years ago when I was a kid. He gave it in Shir and Shabbos Agadal and stuck with me. Okay? I'll bet if you look hard enough you can find this idea in his name on the web. But the word hake to hit someone is with a kaf. Where do I know that from most obviously? The makot. The aserat makot, that's with a kaf. What does it mean hake with two hays? This is a pasuk, okay, in Kohelet. And the pasuk is like this. This is in Perak, um, the wrong pasuk. This is in Kohelet Perak, Perak Yud, Pasuk Yud. This is easy. 10-10. Im kahaha barzel. Okay? If the iron gets blunted, what do you do when the iron gets blunted? Right? Okay? If vahulo panim, and you don't wet the edge of it, right? Kilkal vachailim yigaber, bitron achshel chokhmah. Right? You have to give it more strength by wetting the edge of it. And ultimately, wisdom will increase skill. Just talking about, you know, if you don't know, if you don't have the skill and know how to fix something, right, then you're not as smart. And, and wisdom allows you to increase your skill. But what does this Pasuk say? If the, if the edge of the iron becomes blunted, in keheha bazel, kehe is to be blunted. It's when something sharp becomes blunt. It becomes less sharp. Hakeyat shinav means blunt his teeth. Now what does that mean to blunt his teeth? Right? The teeth represent two things in Divrei Chazal. We don't have the time to get into this. They represent two things. They represent pleasure. Okay? For example, shame is one of the forms of damage. There are Arba Avos Nazikin and Babakama. One of them is shame. Shane is... I uh, hope there are no shanes here. One of the sh- shame is when the ox wants to eat. And it just does damage because it just it's hungry, it wants to eat. That's when we follow our tavot, when we follow our lusts, our desires. The teeth represents pleasure. One way a person becomes Russia is because he follows his teeth, his desires. He wants to have a good time. 
remember once we had a student who was here, and uh, after about a month, and I remember I sat with him, and it was really the, the sort of early on Noraita, but this has happened a number of times since, and, uh, you know, a boy shows up, and, you know, in the interview, you say, look, you know, if you're going to come to Noraita, so it's because you're serious, it's because you, you really want to grow and you want to learn, you know, sometimes a boy is just, after 12 years of Jewish schooling, he's done, he's toasted, he's finished, he just wants a break, he can't look at another minion, he doesn't want to look at another page of Gemara, he wants a break. That boy is not bad, he's not wrong, he's looking to get some air, he knows he's not ready for college, his parents are not going to let him go through Europe. So he's going to come to Israel, be with his friends, and have a good time. And he'll see Eretz Israel and he'll do to him, and he wants like a class or two, once a day, once every other day. That boy should not be in a three-star day yeshiva, it's not fair to put him in a three-star yeshiva, there's nothing wrong with that. Right? But every once in a while a boy comes, and for whatever the reason he thinks this is the place, or sometimes his parents think this is the place, we had a student once, who his, 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 he got here and after a month we're sitting we're going around the class and I was just talking to them about you know where their head is at because now you're here you're registered you've been here a month you trust me and then asking this question you know you don't have to give the right answer like let's be honest with each other and see where we're at so one of the questions that we were talking about was like well, where do you stand like where, where do you, how do you feel about God just get said well honestly I don't believe in God I don't think God exists now I remembered having this discussion with him during the interview process, I was still naive and just assumed the guys would tell me where their head was at. So after a while, you know, take them aside, we're talking, and the next day I said, you know, I get the sense that you don't really, you don't really want the answers to these questions. Like, I have a lot to say on different topics, I'm not into convincing you or anything, but I love to share this stuff, but there's no point to doing this if you're not interested in the answers. So he thought about it for me and he said, yeah, I really don't want the answers to these questions, it's probably true. So I said, so why'd you come here? He said, honestly, because my parents told me that if I want to go to the college of my dreams, right, I have to spend a year in yeshiva. So the only way to get to where I want to go is to go to yeshiva. And this just looked like the easiest place to come to. <laughs> great. Made me feel great. Yeah, great. Right? But he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. He's 17 years old. That's, that's the deal. Right? So, so I said to him, okay, that's a really, that's good. Like, why is it that you think you don't want to answer these questions? Honestly? Because if you answer these questions and I start to think God exists and I gotta put to you, you're gonna ruin my life. I said, huh? He said, yeah, I'm really looking forward to college. I've been in Yeshiva High School and before the Yeshiva Day School, all these rules, and I don't wanna have to deal with this. I just wanna have a good time. I wanna have a party. He didn't quite say it that way, but that's what he was saying. And I don't blame him. I totally understand that, right? Go tell a boy who's 18 years old that he's pursuing the party and one day he's gonna realize he missed the party. You know what I mean? That's one form. Russia is a, is a difficult word. He's headed in the wrong direction because he wants to pursue a life of pleasure. That feels good in the moment, doesn't last, right? The other is that shame, okay? Shame is also a form of nezek, right? Animals use their teeth as weapons, right? The shame is what a person attacks with. Right? A donkey, by the way, has two ways. A donkey can attack. A donkey can be very dangerous in two ways. It can kick you or it can bite you. Rabbi Akiva in the, in the Tosefta talks about the bite of a donkey as breaking bones, right? So blunt the teeth. What does it mean to blunt the teeth? Right? It means don't argue with the guy. Don't argue with the guy who said, what's this to you? Right? Blunt his energy. You know, talk about what you love. So how do you answer that Russia? What do you say to that Russia? Right? Two different possibilities. Now this is interesting. Why is 
the answer of the Torah, Zevach Pesach, completely different from the answer of the Haggadah. So I was always bothered by this. I've seen lots of different answers. One day, a friend of mine, Mayor Becker, who I went to high school with, uh, was giving a short Torah and show, and he happened to bring this up, and what he said really stuck with me. I think this is emet. What's the difference between the Torah and the Haggadah? The Torah is ki yomru alechem One day, when your children will say this, it's talking about the future. It's saying that you may have this issue. There will be kids who have this question. They're distant from you. They're not interested. How can you prevent this happening? Right? That's very different than Agada. Agada, this guy is already in Russia sitting at the table. He's already there. So if you're talking about how you prevent a person from getting to that space, that's Zevach Pesach. That's sort of understanding that Hashem passed over our homes. Now, what do you think I'm communicating to someone? Right? When I share the idea that this entire holiday is called Pesach, because Hashem passed over. We talked about this in the Mezuzah Shia, if you remember. Like, really? Like, God has to check out who's Goldberg? Has to pass over the house? It's a ridiculous scenario. But it's such an important idea that the entire festival, Chagah Pesach, is called because of this moment. What does it mean that Hashem passes over our house? Anybody? Hashem what? Hashem cares. Hashem cares. Hashem could have just killed the Becharot. But Hashem didn't just kill the Hashem wanted us to realize Hashem cares about us. But where is it that Hashem cares about us? How do I acquire the fact that Hashem loves us? I acquire that in the home. I acquire that in the family. Right? Hashem did this for me. Hashem cares about us. Right? He wouldn't have been redeemed because he wouldn't have been in the house. He wouldn't have been part of the family. He wouldn't have been part of the relationship. What is the most... This is an opinion. You can agree with this or disagree with this. The greatest gift to give someone is the sense of belonging. That they belong. That they're loved. That we care. It's not about convincing someone. It's not about showing someone he's wrong or he's right. It's just about showing someone you care. So what's the greatest way to show someone that you care? Somebody thinks that what you're saying is ridiculous. Right? Okay, now, I'm not talking about a scenario where a person isn't interested. Like, sometimes a person, you know, that's an interesting question for another time. Right? You're, you're in the BDS demonstration in, in the middle of campus. That's a whole different discussion. Right? But how do you show a person that you care? You know, somebody comes to the base Meadows, you're sitting here having a Rusa, He's like, why are you doing all this? This is so stupid. Like, what, are you learning Aramaic all day? Right? What, how do you show a person that you care? You listen. You listen to what he has to say. Right? Don't worry. It's something. Right? Hashem listens. We listen to each other. That's what people do in a family. They listen. Right? I think that's the foundation of why questions are so important. Right? If I can ask a question, it means that I'm paying attention. And if you can hear my question, then we're learning to already get it. It's not about the answer. People make a mistake. They think the whole goal is to figure out what the answer is. That's not true. There are many sugyot. I can't even tell you. Where, where, where I had a question, and it really bothered me. For years it bothered me. 
And I can think of sugya where I still have a question that bothers me. I still have not come up with a really good answer for the Allah of Mamzer. still bothers me. It doesn't even bother me that it bothers me. It's good that it bothers me. The question is what's really valuable, you know? And, and that's on so many different levels. You know, you, you see a person sitting in the room and he's in some degree of pain. You know how you show that, that he makes a difference in your life? Is that you have a question. You have a question, like, what's going on? If you walk by a person you have no question, then you're not learning anything and you're not caring anything. I think that's the secret here. The future of the Jewish people is about caring. It's about caring. It's about the fact that each different child has his place at the table, and each one gets a different response, but each one of them gets heard. Right? That's the secret. By the way, we're getting out of Mitzrayim, because in Mitzrayim, nobody was heard. Nobody had a voice. Right? You know, I read an interesting article once. There's a, there's an, a strong opinion in the historical world, in the archaeological world, that the Egyptians created numbers in the Western world. The Chinese apparently did it in the Far Eastern world, but the, but the Egyptians created in the Western world. We Americans who get it from Europe, the Europeans, it came from Egypt. That's one very strong opinion. Why did the Egyptians create numbers? Why did they need numbers? Why were they the first ones to need numbers? Anyone want to guess? They had to, count up their, they had to count their slaves. According to that perspective, Egypt was the first culture that turned a human being into a number. When a person's a number, nobody's listening. It's exactly what we went through 2,000 years later in Auschwitz. Nobody was listening. The world wasn't listening. So the Jewish people built a state of Israel, which is founded on the idea that we listen to each other, that everybody feels heard. And maybe that's part of why the foundational Pasuk, the one that flowed out of F.A. Tom's lips on that plane in Entebbe, was the Shema, right? Because that's our Lesh Baruch we learn to listen so that's a little bit of food for thought on Parshat Bo. There's so much more, you know, to talk about this. Um, there's a lot more to talk about, but we'll stop with this. Um, I will tell you one last thing. Um, as begos our learning here this year. That's a word I just make up, as begos. Uh, as concerns our learning this year. Um, you know, you're in different shirim, and you're pursuing different avenues in Torah and learning, and that's great, right? I want to suggest to you a common theme that came up for me with a discussion that I had with one of you this week, recently. Um, how do you transform Torah into meaning? How do you make it meaningful? How do you fall in love with Torah? There's nothing more depressing than being in Yeshiva, learning all day, and you're just like, you know, you'll do it because you're a good guy, but it doesn't speak to me, it doesn't... I believe it's the same issue, it's the question. You know, uh, there's a, a Dafiomi project it's run by Mizrahi. It's a beautiful idea that uh, they got like a group of 40 rabbis. They, they reached out to like 100, I think. And it just asked, would you be willing from time to time to, to, to record a, a, a vort on, on, on Dafyomi? Right? So most of us said, sure, you know, it's a big deal too. And they want it to be short. This is for people who, they're not going to sit and pour over the Gemara Daft. They're not even going to listen to a 30-minute shear on tape. But just an idea to be in the same topic, to know which Masechta you're in, that you're in Psachim or whatever, fine. So I, I got, um, I don't know, one of these messages from them. Would you do Dafayin Hei in Pesachim? Okay. So, so I looked up, you know, Dafayin Hei, just to, you know, start thinking about what I want to talk about. And there's a whole circuit there about Sliesh. 
right? You know, whatever, without getting into what type of a grill and, you know, what does it mean that it has to be tzaloi and what is tzaloi, whatever else is going on in that daf. Now you see that, and I haven't looked at Pesachim in a while in daf ayin hey, what do you automatically think of? <laughs> I know, that's God. That's God saying, if you're going to have a daf, it's going to be manga. That's true, right? Why does carbon Pesach have to be roasted? Why does the carbon Pesach have to be roasted? If you do everything right, you take the lamb, you're all ready to get out of Egypt, but you don't roast the lamb, you're toast. I know it's a pun, but don't go there, right? The whole thing doesn't work. There's no carbon Pesach if it's roasted. In fact, there's a whole halacha now as to whether you should have, you're not supposed to have roasted meat at the Seder so that people shouldn't think you're actually going to go, why is it important to be roasted? That's where learning gets interesting, right? Starts with a question. You know where it gets to after that? So is there some meaningful idea? If I can't, I don't believe Hashem just wanted me to have roasted meat because it tastes better in heaven. Like, that's ridiculous. There is some deep idea. The Torah takes the time to tell me that the carbon Pesach has to be roasted. So there must be a deep idea. Now I gotta find it. Now for me, that's my favorite part of learning. That journey. I've got a question. Ever since I noticed that daf a couple of days ago, it's been on my mind. I'm gonna find an answer. Will I find the right answer? Is it the best answer? I'm not gonna give up till I find something meaningful. To me, an answer to a question is something that inspires me, that, that's meaningful, that, that affects my life. Look for that on every daf. Look for that in every halacha. Look for that in every tefillah. Look for that in every pasuk. It's there. There are meaningful, powerful, inspiring messages there. High school is over. The Rebbe isn't going to give it to you. I don't think it's his job, to, or her job, to give it to you. I think it's about, it's about, oh, just to qualify that. There are lots of teachers in this world, and they're not all men. I hope you get that. That wasn't a humorous statement, right? I learned how to learn Tanakh from the Hamalimbich. I challenge anybody to stand up to her scholarship, but that's a whole other discussion. That's what makes it meaningful, that there's an inspiration, there's a message. So when you're in high school, you blame your Rebbe, your teacher, your, your, your science teacher. You know, I had a teacher, let's just say he didn't make chemistry interesting, so I never got into science. You know, and I, I don't spend a lot of time blaming. I'm quite happy I'm not in science. But he could take some responsibility for that. That ends when you leave high school. Like, making Torah meaningful now, that's on you. That's on me. You have all the tools. We've been studying mitzvah together. You have all the tools to figure out a meaningful message from every piece of Torah you learn. Now, I am personally not capable of doing with every single piece of Torah I learned because, you know, you have limited time. But don't let a day go by without a good question. Don't let a day go by without a powerful idea that you figure out. That's awesome. That's the payoff. That's exciting. That's what you come back to. So that's a little bit of food for thought. I think that's hidden in the story of the four sons. A lot more to talk about, but we'll stop here.